The following audio is from The Village Church. More information about The Village Church is available at www.thevillagechurch.net. If you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and grab them? Matthew chapter 5 uh, is where we're going to camp out uh, in our time together today. Uh, so this is the last week of Recovering Redemption. Uh, it's been a 12-week series that we started, uh, well, 12 weeks ago. And so I, I want to just kind of take our last session here in this series and kind of land the plane. So, so very quickly, let me kind of condense the last 12 weeks into uh, about five minutes. Uh, and so what we said uh, is that we started out this series kind of looking at the reality that there are either external issues or internal issues um, that reveal that something's not quite right with us. And so sometimes those issues are external to us and they make themselves manifest in uh, relational problems or in behaviors that are detrimental to uh, emotional health, spiritual health, physical health. And then sometimes those issues are actually just internal issues. They haven't really signaled or manifested external to us. We just kind of are either uh, anxious and deal with a lot of anxiety or uh, we tend to walk in a great deal of kind of uh, melancholy kind of darkness. And we said that that those things are actually symptomatic. They're not actually the problem. They're symptoms of a greater problem. But many of us kind of set out trying to solve those things as though they are the problem. And when we do that, nothing good can come of it because we're not treating the disease. We're actually just kind of treating the symptom. And and if you know anything about medicine, if you're simply treating um, symptoms and not the disease, then you're perpetually on new meds or different meds or just trying to manage uh, the issues. And so uh, really those things point to a greater problem. uh, And that problem namely is that we have, because of sin, um, been cut off from our creator. And so the whole idea of redemption or reconciliation is to, to, to fix, to bring back into alignment, to bring back to the way it ought to be. And so that you and I, broken away from our creator because of sin, uh, are on paths trying to make sense of life that aren't going to lead us into greater, richer, more full, more pleasurable life. And so the lies that we have all bought into is that I need to be a better version of me. And if we, you know, had the time, almost everybody go, yeah, buy into that one all the time. So just a better version of me is going to solve it. And so we've said repeatedly, if you're the problem, then a better version of you simply cannot work. And then there's the great lie of our culture that, that we just need someone else to complete us, right? You complete, right? That, that lie, all right? So we're constantly looking for the person that can make us feel better, build us up, be kind of the answer, our kind of dream person. Or maybe it's not that, just to um, have a group of friends that respects and honors what we do to get inside that inner circle of cool kids that still exist when we're 40, God help us. Can we, if God would just mature us past junior high, that'd just be an epic win. Uh, and so uh, in the end, if I could just get in that inner circle, if people would just respect what I do, where we need people to validate us, which is a type of enslavement and bondage um, that so many of us submit our lives to. And then there's the, the lie that, that eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And this is a pursuit of worldliness that, that is everything from uh, selling out to get the most stuff, all of which is the stuff of future garage sales, or... Or pursue pleasure, but not any kind of lasting legitimate pleasure, more temporary pleasure that almost always carries with it a type of guilt and shame. And, and so that's a lot. And then God help us, there are plenty of us who actually try to solve our problems with external moral religion. 
And, and so what we did is we really, the whole first part of this series was going, this isn't going to work. Right? Because these things don't work because they're not solving the problem. The problem's actually your heart. It's not your actions, it's your heart. And your heart is leading to actions. And so if the heart doesn't change, you'll never be free. White knuckled, I'm not going to behave like that. It's not God's desire for you in the gospel. And so God has reconciled us to himself, not by demanding that we first and foremost adhere to a moral code, but rather by sending the son of God, by sending Jesus Christ, unlike us, to live a completely perfect life. That Jesus Christ was completely obedient to every command that God gave him. He was other than, although he was fully man. So Jesus is fully man, but his obedience was perfect. His record was spotless. No accusation could be made against him. So I'll go on record saying, I don't think he bit anyone in the nursery ever. All right. So fully man, but fully God, blameless, perfect, spotless, completely obedient is sent to the cross, goes to the cross. On the cross of Jesus Christ, he absorbs God's wrath towards any and all of the rebellion of those who would become children of God. I said that exactly like it must be said correctly. That he absorbed all, every bit of the wrath of God for those who would become sons and daughters of God. So not all of God's wrath. Some of that wrath is good and right and will be justly executed, but For those of us who are children of God, all of God's wrath is gone, absorbed fully in Christ so that we are completely forgiven. Listen, you limp into this place today. I mean, you're walking in with a limp, been a tough week, got busted up, gave in to some of your flesh a bit, got a bit wrecked up. God knows you hadn't surprised him. That was taken care of, absorbed fully in the cross of Christ. But beyond that, Not only are all of our sins forgiven, past, present, and future, that's part of that reconciliation, but also Christ's obedience was imputed to us. So not only does God see us as sin-free because Christ has absorbed that sin, but we're also delighted in and loved, adopted as sons and daughters because the imputed righteousness of Christ was given to us. So that when God sees us, He sees not only the absence of sin, but the presence of Christ's perfection. That's the gospel, that we have been reconciled to God. Now, we imperfectly execute obedience to who we are. But God's grace even covers that. You'll never meet a perfect Christian. You'll find those that are positionally perfect under the banner of God's grace. So for those of you who are like, the church is filled with hypocrites, I readily agree with you, absolutely. And that should make you feel at home. You should never be able to use that as an excuse to not plug in with the people of God. Oh, gosh, they're just hypocrites and a bunch of misfits. Yeah. It means that you would fit right along with us. Come on in. That that shouldn't be a detriment. It actually should feel warm to you. Oh, busted up, jacked up people. I think I could work here. (laughs) Right? And so it's imperfectly executed, but it's offered to those who will by faith believe in this grace. And then this gospel begins to work its way through, not just now the vertical relationship with our Father, but now begins to work out horizontally in how we interact with one another. 
And so that Christ calls to himself a group of people and he begins to sanctify them, which means that he doesn't leave us where we are, but he makes us more and more and more and more and more and more like Jesus. And here's the big scandalous thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ, how uh, what we believe at Christians stands in stark contrast to the other world religions. We are not trying to appease God with our behavior. We're not trying to buy him off. Our mantra, we, we don't have a philosophy of living. Christianity is wildly different from that. We're not, I'm going to act this way so that God will accept me. It's absurd. That's the anti-gospel. Now, our lives are transformed. And, and morality does begin to walk in uprightness. But that's because of what God has done in our hearts. We don't do those things to get God to do something in our hearts. And so uh, Ezekiel says it this way. I read this a couple weeks ago, but I just don't think that you have enough Ezekiel in your spiritual diet. So let's do some work here. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27 says this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now notice the direction that this flows. It flows in the opposite direction of all other world religions where other world religions would say, if you do these things, you can be given a new heart and might be happy. Christianity flows in the opposite direction where God says, despite you, I'm going to start by giving you a new heart and then I'm going to fill you with my Holy Spirit. And in my filling you with the Holy Spirit, I am going to empower and stir up in you a glad obedience to my command because the fullness of life and pleasure is found in obedience to my commands. So I'm going to strengthen and empower you. You will not white knuckle obedience. I'm going to flood you with joy in it. And that's the promise of the gospel. And that's what makes us stand in stark contrast to the other world religions. Now, from here, what is God leading us in obedience and sanctifying our lives leading us into? Well, uh, that pulls us into Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 14. Um, If you're not a Christian, this is more than likely going to sound horrifically arrogant to you. uh, And I'll try to explain why it is and why it isn't. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 says this. You, speaking of those who are followers of Christ, those who are children of God, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Oh, no. Right? If you didn't, oh, no. No, we don't. All right? If you're not laughing, you didn't grow up in church. All right? Now, um, from there, he says, um, but a, they put it on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, um, everyone, regardless of belief system, has something that they believe is the light of the world. Uh, and so Christ is saying, my people are going to be the light of the world. And you might be able to look and go, man, I know Christians. I've got my doubt. Haven't Christians been responsible for some huge atrocities against mankind? How in the world are Christians the solution to what is dark in the world? Well, I would say if you weigh any claim to be the light of the world with those goggles on, you have to come to the same conclusion. 
So some will say, no, 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 education is the light of the world. No, 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 opportunity. If you just give people opportunity. No, um, a capitalistic system is the light of the world. No, 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 a, a governmental structure is the light of the world. And all of those have been far more catastrophic lights than the light of the gospel. And so I'll say some things. Maybe, maybe you like them, maybe you don't. I'm far more interested in, in what the Lord feels about me and thinks about me. And, and so let me just say it. Um, capitalism does nothing to transform hearts. It just creates the venue by which we will oppress and operate in injustice. Doesn't eradicate oppression and injustice. It just sets the grid for how our wicked hearts will practice such things. And the United States, for all of God's grace on this beautiful 50-state union, is not the light of the world. And some of you are like, you hating on America? No, I'm not. Love America. Love it. Love being here. Not worried about a mob being wait, waiting for me in the parking lot. Don't have to worry about there's a rule of law here and a freedom here that lets me freely proclaim the gospel without fear of legal repercussion. Nobody's going to cut my head off or imprison me for preaching the Bible today. Praise God for that. It's not true for so many of our brothers and sisters all over the world. In fact, even in the recent weeks, there have been dozens, if not hundreds, of North Koreans drug into the street and shot in the head for owning a Bible. Not us. I I own four, not counting what I have on my iPad. We don't live in such fear, so praise God, but we're not the answer. I mean, how is the, how's the exportation of democracy working out for us? Huh? How's that seed going into the ground globally? Not well. And regardless of what you say, this is the light outside of the light of the gospel. It simply becomes the grid by which people will actively oppress and operate in injustice because the issue is the heart and those structures will not transform the heart. You will just have a more educated, more opportunity having, more wealth possessing ability to oppress others for your own selfish gain. It's broken. It's broken well beyond the ability of human construct to fix. Golly, even the secular Greeks knew this. That's the whole point of Prometheus. All right, Prometheus was the God who gave man fire, and then Zeus was enraged at that, and so um, bolted him down to a rock where every day a vulture came and ate out his liver, but then his liver would grow back, and the vulture would come back the next day and eat it, and Zeus's beef with Prometheus was, you gave him fire, they don't know how to use it, they'll keep trying to use it, and they'll kill themselves. And so even the Greeks dialed into this idea that we can't seem to fix what's wrong, and the more we try to fix what's wrong, we just make it messier. Like, follow me, somebody at one point thought it was a good idea to use asbestos to keep things warm and cool. Think about that. That's a legitimate, hey, we need some insulation here. Hey, let's use this. Oh, that'll kill you. Technology is going to create more space for us to spend time with families and be more dialed into human interactions, isn't it? (laughs) True story, I just walked in where the worship team was before I came out here, dead silent, every one of them looking at their device. Dead, so I mocked them. That's what I do. I'm like, hey, why don't you do whatever you're doing? We're like, we're reading a blog channel. But seriously, like, not, not one word, total silence, 12 people all looking at a device. It has not made us better people. It's made us dumber people, Prometheus. We can't fix our own issues. Our hope is rooted in the gospel alone. 
And when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, he's talking about people not who uh, have bought into civil religion or somebody who is, uh, I'm a conservative God-fear, but those who have legitimately been transformed by the gospel and are disciples of Jesus Christ. Not church folk, disciples of Jesus Christ. And so he outlines that at the beginning. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 2, he says this. How is it possible that we are light of the world? Well, look at what God does in the hearts of those who believe. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to notice in these first four that all four of these run in stark contrast and in a contrary direction to the values of our culture. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are, happy are the the ones who understand that spiritually they're bankrupt, that they're in need of help. Blessed are the ones that are not like the Pharisees who are so self-righteous that they don't even need a God. Blessed are the ones who understand that they own nothing, possess nothing, have nothing that was not given to them by God. Blessed are the ones. So I'm going to say this. I know it's a bold statement. If in these first four, if there's not a pinch of it in your life, you're probably not a Christian. I know that's hard on a Sunday morning. You'd much rather have some, you know, happy, um, happy sermon, but I'd much rather uh, you be blessed and saved than temporarily happy. And, and so ultimately, you don't have a pinch of this. You don't have a pinch of being poor in spirit. You don't have a pinch of God help me. You don't have a pinch of that. Then I'm telling you, I don't think you're a believer. I don't know how it works. If you're so awesome, you don't need a savior, then you're not saved. All right, and then he moves on from here and says, not only blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, but blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, when when Jesus is talking about mourning here, he's not, oh, you lost a loved one, and and now uh, you're sad about that. That's not what's going on here. He's saying, blessed are the mourn, blessed, blessed are those who are aware of how they've rebelled against God, who are heartbroken in their sin, and who in their poor in spirit bankruptcy have cried out to the Father. And I love this line, because they will be comforted. Love watching Jesus Christ interact with people who are at the fringes of society. Woman caught in adultery, drug naked to Jesus' feet, thrown at his feet, and and the the accusation is according to the law. All right, this bronze age awfulness. I mean, notice the man won drug there. I mean, it takes two to tango. Left the man, drugged the woman. I mean, you want to talk about a sexist, perverse, wicked way of interacting. They drug this woman, threw her at the feet of Christ, tears, shame, undressed, naked in front of this mob. They say the law says that we're to stone her. What do you say, Jesus? And so Jesus, just as smooth as possible, starts drawing in the dirt. We never know what he's drawn, but he's drawn in the dirt. And he says, tell you what, let the one of you that has no sin, let, let, let him throw the first stone. And the Bible says from youngest from oldest to youngest, they dropped their stones and left. And then here's what happens. Jesus walks up to this sobbing woman and he lifts up her face. And he says, has no one condemned you? Nor do I go and sin no more. See, don't despise conviction. It's a gift of God. So um, when I, about 
probably eight months into my pastorate here, uh, a family was one of the original 168, uh, had left. We'd gotten to that size where it was hard for some of those guys. They were here early on when you'd never been a part of a church larger than 400 and all of a sudden you're running 3,000. That's just difficult. And, and so they had left and, and I saw them out in town and I just don't ever want anybody to feel weird about that. I'm not my identity and wrapped up in that. You landed at Treach or Valley Creek or something like that. Praise God. And, and so I just literally walked over, asked them how they were doing, asked them if they had found a good home. Yeah, that was great. All right, praise God. You're, you're plugged in. Yeah, plugged in. And, and then I guess he, the husband, just felt like he owed me something. Uh, and so he said, man, I, I mean, I just really love you. I, I, just, I'm, I'm always, I just always feel so guilty after you preach. So I just always feel so uncomfortable when I'm leaving. And so I was thinking, that's good. What are you, you're saying that as it's a bad thing. All right, it's actually a good thing. Listen, conviction from God is a gift from God. To not be convicted is when you should be worried. Like if you can always come to church and the word of God never bears its weight on you, you're probably in a place that isn't preaching it. Like the word of God's going to bear weight on you. God should see differently than you see, shouldn't he? I mean, shouldn't he repeatedly engage and go, um, smarter than you on this, this way. If he doesn't, aren't you your own God? And, and so conviction, mourning, the ability to go, man, I've sinned again. It should make us mourn, but there should be a tinge of sweetness in it. Why? Because he's the lifter of our head. That in the middle of that, he lifts up our head and goes, this has already been paid for. I still, I'm, I have not changed my mind about you, son daughter. I have not wavered in my delight in you. This has been fully taken care of in Jesus Christ. Let's get up. Let's keep walking. The Lord celebrates the steps of his children, even if it's two steps forward, one step back. That's still a step. He rejoices in that. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And then he moves from there. Blessed are the meek, right? For they shall inherit the earth. Now, I think meekness gets a bad rap. I think it's completely misunderstood. Meekness does not equal passivity. Uh, in fact, uh, it's been my understanding from the word of God that, in, that a genuine growing relationship with the God will, will, not, will not lead to passivity, but a type of godly, humble aggression because you believe and trust in the promises of God. And so let me say this to you, men. If you are in the business world, you're in finance, you're in law, you're in whatever domain you're in, I want you to shoot for the top. I mean, I want you to run companies, build empires. I want you to rise to the top, not apologize for it, but be godly as you pursue it. Don't neglect your family. Don't lean that ladder against the wrong wall. Walk in uprightness, dignity, work your tail off, and succeed. Piety does not equal passivity. The more confident we are in the Lord, the more aggressive we should be in almost all walks of life. The the difference is, and where meekness comes in, is we are a people that understands fully that all that we have and all that has been given to us has been given to us by God. Therefore, we will be really marked by a humility and gentleness that's present because of our understanding of where all things came from. And we might be good and work hard, but God blesses those who work really hard. And then some guys work really, really hard and they don't see those big things happen in their lives. But you should be hungry for it. You should be hungry for it. And you should never apologize for earthly success. It's according to the Bible, granted by God to those who would put their faith and believe big upon his promises. 
And then he moves from there to blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So um, there's this interesting kind of paradox that occurs in the word of God. And that's the more of Jesus you experience, the more of him you want. And so there's always in a state of satisfaction, a desire for more of what is an inexhaustible fountain of grace. And, and so even in my own life, I can tell you, I'm a really content man. I love my house, love my car, love my wife, love my kids, love where life is right now and still want more, more of the Lord to experience more of his grace, to walk in more of his power, to understand him more fully, to obey him more passionately, to follow him with greater resolve. To, and, and I think regardless of life station, this should be present. And so you will be filled, but that filling will simply lead you to want more because he's inexhaustible. He's inexhaustible. So the paradox is that you can be fully content and desire more. And this is all over the Bible. This is David saying, as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. This is the apostle Paul in Philippians chapter three saying, oh, that I might know him. This is Moses saying, show me your glory. Let me see you more fully. There's a hunger in the hearts of God's people for more of God, even as they experience the fullness of God in a moment in their lives. There's more. There's always more. He has the ability to save, so there's always more. He has the ability to heal. There's always more. He has the ability to reconcile. There's always more. A hunger to see God do what we know God can do both in our lives and the lives of others. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, as I've said, I think these first four, if you don't have a pinch of these, you're probably not a Christian. If there isn't a pinch of mourning, if there isn't a pinch of gentleness, if there isn't a pinch of hunger for the things of God, then man, I I love you enough to say it. You're probably not a believer. And I know you saw that terrifying sketch when you and RAs, when you were seven and gave your life to Christ. I mean, no fruit, no following, no real relationship with Jesus Christ. You're just trying to be good as you've defined it. But I'm telling you, without these four things, more than likely you are not a believer in Christ. Are you a good person? Well, I guess if you want to define goodness in human terms, maybe. My guess is you're comparing yourself to some moron you know and feeling good about yourself. <laughs> it's just my guess. I could be wrong. I could be wrong. That, that's my... That's my guess. And so these first four, they really express in one way or another our dependence upon God. Now, these next three move from our dependence on God to the outworkings of dependence on God. So then he says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. So one of the things that comes in our lowliness, in our humility, in our dependence upon God is a growing empathy and compassion for others. So the the reason that that Christians can be said by Jesus Christ that we are going to be the light of the world is there's an intrinsic humility that is birthed in our dependence and our mourning and our hungering and thirsting for him that, that runs counterintuitive to the way the world operates. The world doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit. The world says just do it. You got this. You don't need any help. You got it. The world doesn't mourn over its sin. It doesn't think there's such thing until something horrific happens, and then all of a sudden it's there. But just in everyday life, what's sin? I mean, you got to get past that. That's all, are you Ned Flanders? Are you kidding me right now? The world doesn't hunger and thirst for righteousness. They hunger and thirst for power, for wealth, for pleasure, to be viewed as successful. But he says, blessed are 
the merciful, those who have empathy and compassion towards others. So our posture is never one of judgment. Our posture is always one of empathy, compassion, patience, love. That's the default posture of the sons and daughters of God. And then from there, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So the pure in heart, that's not cardiovascular health, uh, all right? When he says, blessed are the pure in heart, it's a reference to really the, the core of our being. At the core of our being, we are pure in heart. And so this means, and we've unpacked this, I said this a couple of times now, that sometimes what I catch myself thinking scares me. Anyone else? Like sometimes just in the middle of a thought, I'll catch what I'm actually thinking and be mortified about myself. You know, like, oh my, how dark am I that I'm having this thought right now? And so I want to learn to grab those thoughts, take them captive under Christ, lay them at the feet of God, confess that I don't want those to be in there, ask for pure thoughts, ask for pure motives, ask for a pure heart, lay it before the Lord, ask for his forgiveness, rest in the forgiveness. I know he lavishes upon me and move forward. I want to take every thought captive. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And then I love this next one, even though they, people who really excel at being obedient to this get on my nerves. And, and here's what it says. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And let me make a distinction here. He didn't say, blessed are the peacekeepers, but rather, blessed are the peacemakers. So let me tease that out a little bit. All right, A peacekeeper would be someone who walked into conflict and tried to resolve it. I, I think that's good and right. And we spent two weeks on horizontal relationships just working to this end. But a peacemaker is someone by the default position of their lives refuses to let anyone sow seeds of disunity. And so a peacemaker does this kind of stuff, and this is what gets on my nerves. If you'll say, hey, man, you're not going to believe what such and such did. They're like, well, hey, man, you're not having that conversation with me. Like, if you've got a problem with them, you need to go have a conversation with them. That's what the Bible would tell you. Are you trying to recruit me to be on your team against this person? Man, you're trying to put in my mind something that will rob me from the ability of giving this person the benefit of the doubt being able to see them and care for them in a way that doesn't have me in the box towards them. You don't need to have this conversation. I'm not letting you have this conversation with me. We're not going to sit down every time we sit down and let you complain to me about something. You're a grown man. You're a grown woman. Work it out. All right, that's a peacemaker. A peacemaker will risk conflict for the sake of peace. Right? A peacemaker will go, you're not having this conversation with me. Go work it out. Why are you whining to me about this? Go have the conversation with this man, with this woman. Stop this. It's not happening. They're, they're the ones when everyone else is dogging somebody in a circle, brings up that person's good point. You know, can you believe? I know. I know. I can't believe. Yeah, but did you guys see how he treated that? That was amazing. I love that that's in him. I mean, just an awkward grenade right in the middle of that conversation. <laughs> Right, Everybody just feeling so self-righteous and then all of a sudden it was exposed that no one was self-righteous except the peacemaker. Like, try it. Watch how awkward things get when you bring up the strength of someone when everyone's dogpiling on their weaknesses. Blessed are the peacemakers, not the peacekeepers. That's a good, beautiful thing to pursue, but the peacemakers. I'm gonna make a little peace here. I think they're awesome. <laughs> awkward. Now, it takes a turn here, takes a turn, and it's one that we need to talk about. Verse 10, 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now that's a wild term, right? Now you want to talk about counterintuitive. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness. Now you've got to hear this. It is not when you're persecuted for being a moron. All right. If you were going 90 through a school zone and got pulled over, that's not persecution. That's justice. How does this play itself out in the real world? Well, I'll give you real examples. On four or five different occasions in my 11 years here, godly men have lost well-paying jobs because at work, the expectation was and the culture set was to do something that's a little bit illegal or a little bit in the gray for the good of the company. And they refused. And they were demoted and fired for it. Now, you might be saying, well, how can Jesus say, blessed is the man who gets fired or demoted from his job when he has a family to provide for? Well, a couple of things. I'll tell you how in every one of these cases they were blessed. One, they got to put their head on their pillow at night with a clear conscience. And in my experience, there's few things that pay as well as that. The second thing is they watched the church rally around them, love them, care for them, and provide for them find, help them find jobs until they were back up on their feet. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Not those who are persecuted for being foolish, but persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom. And then it gets, he, he's like, he doesn't want to move off this point too quickly because look where he goes next. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. What's that word? Falsely. That becomes huge. So look back at your Bible. Let's read that again. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Now this is a difficult passage. Blessed are you when you are reviled. Now, I don't even know what that is, but it sounds awful. All right? When you are reviled and when people say things against you falsely, blessed are you. Well, let me, let's just have a frank conversation. It's church. Good place for it. If you're not dialed in to the growing hostility and marginalization of Christianity from mainstream culture, you're just not paying attention. Uh, We are witnessing the last breaths of Christendom, and praise God for that. For the last hundred years plus, there's been what what really a buddy of mine calls civil religion, which basically means, yeah, we're American, we're Christian, right? I mean, that's kind of the kind of default, conservative, Christian value, religious right kind of ridiculousness. It means our churches have been filled with a ton of people who have no real dedication to Jesus Christ, but find it un-American to not be there. And we're watching that die fast, and it'll be good, but it puts us in a new place, a place that none of us have actually experienced in our lifetime. That's marginalized and pushed to the fringes. And already the broad brushstrokes about us are not good. And so if I can just take one subject, I'm not teaching on this subject, I'm using it as an example, as legislature begins to be passed on same-sex marriage and the definition of marriage and all of that, if you're listening to the rhetoric, here is the accusation against us, broad-stroked as Christians. 
that we are bigots, that we are intolerant, that we are the American Taliban, that we are right up there with the KKK and the civil rights movement trying to deny people of rights that are God-given. That's accusations being made against us. Now look at me. They had better be false accusations. They had better be false accusations. I don't pretend that our view will ever be understood by those outside the kingdom of God. But we are a people commanded by God to be marked by love, compassion, patience, mercy, and hear me, hospitality. Hospitality. Look at me. You don't catch sin from sinners. You hear me? And so I know some of you, in, in the attempt to protect your family and, and to make sure you guys stay pure than you actually are, build walls so that you don't want your kids around those kind of kids. You don't want to be around those kind of people. You are those kind of people. It's God's grace that has rescued you from that. Stop that nonsense. We don't build walls. We open doors. So my house is open. And, and, and my neighbors can make accusation against me, but they better be false. So I want them just to be confused. Like, I'm, I just want my neighbors to be so ridiculously confused. It's like, God, this guy's a bigot, but he keeps inviting me over for dinner. <laughs> Guy makes me sick, and he keeps bringing me presents on my birthday and Christmas. Right? I mean, that guy's like the American Taliban, but he sure is friendly. I mean, right? I, I just want that type of confusion. And in my house, listen, there's got to be wisdom. I'm not telling you to operate in a way that lacks wisdom. But brother, sister, God has put us here for the purposes of being the light of the world and you don't hide it under a bush. Oh no, you don't do that. No, we engage, we encourage, we open up our home. And, and there's some risk involved in that. Be wise, but trust God in those things. So we've had people in our house for dinner and, and, and people, in fact, my wife uh, baptized a woman just a couple of weeks ago that was such, just such, God bless her, just in such, just a train wreck. And man, just was all over the map in regards to, she, she literally prototype who would probably be infuriated with Christian, Christianity. And, and Christians, and sure enough, as we had conversation, story after story of being judged harshly, of being ostracized, of being made to feel worthless, of being made, I mean, was present. And some of that was on her. It's not always on God's people. Sometimes um, unregenerate people don't know what to do with conviction. They don't see it as a sweet. They feel it as judgment. In fact, some of you here today feel judged and no one's actually judged you. You're judging you right now. We're not judging you. And, and so in the middle here, we, we saw this woman just start spending time. And good Lord, she like lives at my house. Now. I mean, she's just home more than I am, I feel like. And, and so it's been a beautiful kind of thing. Our doors are just open. No, you can't come over, but our doors are open. <laughs> All right? And in fact, the more jacked up you are, the more I feel drawn for you to come in and see what life looks like in glad submission to Jesus Christ, where we laugh a lot, where we enjoy good food, where we enjoy good wine, but don't do it in a way that's outside the bounds of the word of God and let you see the life that's made available to those who would put their trust in Jesus Christ and see our imperfections and to see God loves imperfect people. That's why dressing up like you're pretty when you're not isn't helpful. Isn't helpful. 
the labels will be put on us. At this point, it's, it's over. This is how we will be labeled. It will get worse. If you can't handle this label and don't want to be viewed like this, then you're going to have to go underground with your faith, which means I don't think you have any. But may the accusations and the labels be false. And look how the Lord wants to encourage you after this. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, which is awesome, but I love this whole line. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So he's going, hey, they're going to falsely label you? Cool, they did that to Isaiah. You guys have something in common now. Oh, they're going to falsely misrepresent you? Hey, you and Jeremiah would be boys. You guys could sit around and talk about what it's like to be ostracized and pushed to the margins. And Jesus will also say, oh, I'm well acquainted with that. Was Jesus not repeatedly misrepresented? Repeatedly accused of things that were absurd? So there'll be nothing you can do about the accusation. Just let it be false accusation. And rejoice and be glad for great is our reward in heaven. We are a people that have been put in a precarious spot to be against the world for the world. That's precarious. And yet it's our calling. Now, how do we live out being the light? Well, there's two ways. There's an individual way, and then there's kind of a corporate way or an organic way, and then an organizational way. And so let me, let me do it this way. First and foremost, uh, you are lights in the darkness by following the aptitudes that led you into the career that you're in. Uh, and so by and large, this isn't universally true, but by and large, our aptitudes drive what we do because people like to do things that are easier for them and that they like to do. Now, the reason I say that drives most of us is it's simply not true for all of us. And I know that because I've seen the first couple of episodes of American Idol several times. So I know that there are people who lack aptitude but still have passion in a distinct area of weakness. And I'm telling you, community would solve that. That someone has not loved them well. That they haven't just come and said, understand your passion, but you're good at math, brother. You're good at math. Stop this. I don't want to be this guy, but I feel like before you go on this show, listen to me. No. Math. Business. Go. All right. Now, so we follow our aptitudes. Our aptitudes lead into more than likely our career choice. And now that we've been placed within a domain of society, we have been placed around coworkers. We live in neighborhoods and, and we've been placed there as lights so that in one sense, our light shines in individual one-on-one relationships as we share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus Christ. But it also is bigger than that in that within the domain that God has placed us, we're able to systematically push back systemic darkness. So let me give you my favorite example. Um, uh, International Justice Missions is an unbelievable organization out there. Gary Haugen leads that. He was the lead investigator for the United Nations on the genocide in Rwanda, also a very godly man. And, and when he walked in and he saw all that had occurred in that genocide, his heart was 
pierced and he wanted to do more than just exercise his brilliance in investigation and his brilliance in international law. And so he built an organization around other investigators and other lawyers that is a global organization that fights against sex traffic, that fights against slavery, where people in India and Africa are actually chained up in a rock quarry where they work 18 hours a day with little to no pay, hardly fed. I mean, stuff that you think is long gone that's actually ever present. In fact, I was having a conversation with our um, member uh, just uh, a few minutes ago in this very room that was having a conversation with a young Filipino woman who actually was brought brought over and prostituted out. And if you want to pretend like this isn't happening all around us, I think you're closing your eyes to some very easy things to see. And so now a group of lawyers and special investigators, believers in Christ, are using the domain that God put them in to push back what is dark in the world. So whether or not you're in the realm of education, the realm of finance, the realm of government and politics, the realm of agriculture, or the realm of art, God has uniquely wired you and placed you to share the gospel with individuals and to push back what is dark in the world systemically through the domain in which he has placed you. And this is how we shine as lights individually. This is organic Now, organizationally, as a church, here's what we try to do. I don't want to shake my fist at the darkness. I don't know where that gets us. But I do want to plant as many lights as possible. And so, like lighting candles at a Christmas Eve service, I want to spend our resources, our energies, and our monies in building out and planting gospel outposts all over the city and all over the world. And so we do that via campuses, um, and so we've got four campuses now. We'd probably like to have five or six. Um, working hard to try to figure out a, a building in Plano. We've got thousands of you driving over from Plano. We'd just much rather put a little sweet thing out there for you and just let you be in your neighborhood and not drive so far. And then we primarily do this via church plants. Um, and so we've planted dozens and dozens and dozens of churches, not just in the Metroplex, but all over the world because we believe in lighting candles among the darkness. And this is how organizationally as a church will be lights in the darkness. So let me show you a quick video on how we church plant and how you can be involved in that. When I first became the pastor of the Village Church, one of the things that became clear as I was looking through all the documents that were handed to me was that the Village Church had been planted by Lakeland Baptist Church that's literally two exits down from us. And then Lakeland Baptist Church was planted by First Baptist Church of Louisville. And so really we began to see this line form that I think you can trace all the way back to the book of Acts, that the primary way that God has let the gospel penetrate and permeate throughout the world is through churches that plant churches. And so we want to be a part of what God is doing and actively be a church that plants other churches. And so we do that really in in three ways. We send through our sending program. So we want to train young men and train young women for the role of gospel ministry and and want to send them out from the village church to plant churches. And and then we um, partner with other organizations that do this well. And so Thrive in the City is an organization that does residencies for 
for those interested in planting in urban centers. And then Fellowship Associates is another partner that also does residencies for um, people who want to plant really anywhere. It's not a specialized residency like Thrive is, but it's a good, solid residency. And then from there, we want to uh, partner with Acts 29, which is a church planting network that I currently am president over. And so we want to partner. We not only want to send, but we want to partner with others who are doing this well. And then finally, we want to resource church planters. And so we're going to do that financially with money. We're going to do that in regards to giving them the things that we have written and created as the village church as a means of using those things in their plants. And then ultimately, we want to at some level coach church planters to to mature and grow as gospel ministers. And, And then finally, and one of the things I want to plead with you on is to be more and more and more involved in what God is doing through the Village Church in the area of church planting. And really, you can do this in three ways. Uh, You can give. And so you can give money specifically to a church planter or to a church plant, uh, or you you can go. I mean, some of you literally, and we have a history of this now, some of you have actually moved your family and and moved, uh, transferred jobs so that you might be a part of church plants that we're doing in the city or to the ends of the earth. And then really the, the final way you can participate all the more in church planning is an area that we can all get better at and all be involved. And that's just being prayerful about church plants, church planting, and about God raising up laborers for the harvest. And so maybe your home group adopts a specific planter, or maybe your home group just adopts a time for you guys to pray about church planting. But my hope is in the years to come that we might be more and more and more known as a church that plants churches and a church that is passionately about other gospel outposts being planted all over the world. To this end, we pray and labor. Bless you. Thank you for listening to audio from the Village Church, located in Texas. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about the Village Church, please visit us online at www.thevillagechurch.net.